Ecclesiastes 11. There, it opens up in verse 7 with one of my favorite verses in the whole book, certainly. And uh, I've, when I read it, uh, I always think about the gift of life and what a beautiful blessing it is to see a new day dawning. And it says in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7, Light is sweet, Solomon, or as he's known as the preacher here, he writes these words. He says, the teacher says this, Light is sweet, and how pleasant to see a new day dawning. And I love that verse. I love the lightness of it. I love the optimism in it. I love what it's telling us about the gift of a new day. There have been times where all I really needed to do was go to sleep and wake up to the gift of a new day to get in a better place, to approach something more in a way. And you know what? Because sometimes the new day is, it just has a certain, he uses the word pleasant. It's satisfying to see the, the sun rise and the new day dawn. There's something about it. He says, when people live to be very old, and the assumption, it is an assumption, not a guarantee. When, we, when he says, as he's scoping the panorama of life, he says, when people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. In other words, live optimistically, live thankfully and gratefully, and that's the way to live, he's saying. But let them also, and I appreciate this qualifier, this compliment, this honest word that is associated with the invitation to live gratefully. Because he says, but let them also remember that there will be many dark days and everything still to come. In, in terms of what, what we have, it will end, is meaningless in that regard. It's vain, which is a key theme in the book. But the, the phrase there that stood out to me was, as you are enjoying this gift of life, remember, there will be dark days. There will be tough times. There will be, if we can put it, stormy seasons. That's what we've been experiencing for the last few days. A lot of stormy weather, a lot of rain, and that was, you know, and it wasn't just the rain, it, it was wind, it was, you could feel the, the storm hitting. And there's something about life and how it, there are times where we're going along fine, but then we're hit with a storm, and we feel it in its force. And, and in those times, things happen inside of our hearts. And a lot, those are oftentimes the learning times of life. Those are the times when we actually listen better for God and to God. I was thinking about the dark days, the dark seasons of life, the challenging times, the reality of dark days. It's impossible to escape, escape them. I mean, they will come. Thorns and thistles will always be some reality on this side of Eden. There's a broken element to our existence. And no phrases or pithy maxims or sayings are ever going to change the fact that there's a part of life, as much as it is beautiful and joyful, that almost compels us to be thankful and grateful. There's also times when life is really tough and hard. And it's because Jesus said it's broken. It's, it's, it's a world that he came to address the condition in it. And that's why he came, in part, was to give himself to be broken for us. Again, we talk about that so that there might come the possibility of life. And, and yet, the reality that Jesus talked about Brokenness is something that we, we all understand and relate to. This idea, he said, in this world, you will have difficulty. There will be times of tribulation, he said. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that's not true. He says, but what I've come to do is show you how to live joyfully in the midst of it. Now, that's what Jesus talked about. I, I was thinking about it when these difficult times come. It can happen in a lot of different areas. It may have, we may be struggling right now in a particular difficult time. I mean, some of us, I just know the nature of the way life is. Uh, we, we're, again, things can be going smoothly, and all of a sudden something hits us. It could happen in a relationship that we have. 
you know, might hit us in, in, in relation to our family or some uh, friendships or maybe in our marriage where all of a sudden we have a real problem and it's, it's getting hard. And in that place where it hits us like that, everything else, you know, just sort of stops and have to pay attention to it because it's tough. And how we negotiate that, how we get through it, it might happen spiritually. You know, there are times where we're doing great with the Lord, we feel close to God, and there are other times where it seems like, you know, God's so far away and we're struggling with doubt and we're, we're getting stuck back in stuff that we were hoping we were well past and, and we're struggling and it's hard. Other times it's relating to our emotions and maybe we're, some things have been happening, we're discouraged about it. And again, I'm just kind of thinking about holistically about how life is and how sometimes, you know, when we, we get disappointed, but if a disappointment builds up, you know, over time, it can become a dis, kind of a discouragement and then if discouragement is allowed to fester in our lives, eventually it starts to look like a low-grade kind of depression. And that can affect us and it affects the way we are living and we begin to carry a cloud with us and nothing is, feels, you know, uplifting to us. And we're just down on life in those dark seasons, those difficult days. They really can be tough times. And, you know, I was thinking, of, and of course, the obvious one physically, when, when we get sick, it's just no fun being sick at all. Uh, that this last at the beginning, usually at the end of the year, it 2007 ended up being no exception. But usually, uh, around December, I I usually like a lot of people catch a cold, and I always I'm always thinking, can I get through this without getting one? And I made it really far. Right, I was surrounded. My whole family was sick. I was surrounded. I, and everybody was getting sick. I was at work. Everybody was sick. I was just you know, and I shake a lot of hands, and so. It was, I was going, I, I've made it so far, and then all of a sudden, bam, right at the beginning of the new year, I get hit. And I was like, oh, I hate being sick. It slows everything up. I feel awful. I was getting miserable. I was just, life was not joyful for me. And I found I couldn't do it. I was trying to push. You know how when you get a cold, you try to just push your way through it, keep going, and keep, but there's a point where your body says, nuh uh, you need to pull back. You need to, you need to rest. You need to sleep. It's your body's way of saying that you're having, there's a fight going on inside of you. There's an invader. And the body is rallying to fight the infection, to, to keep, get us healthy, right? And, and it's saying you can't keep, it's like a mechanism is telling us, slow down, drink fluids. You're going to have to pull off. You are not God. You are, and I remind myself in those moments that we're frail. There's something about being sick that reminds us about the gift of our health makes us more appreciative of it. I know that. I mean, there's a lot of times I don't really think about it, but when I get sick, all of a sudden I start going, boy, I just feel I'm so, I'm so thankful for getting better. And it really does cause me to sympathize with those who are continually, some of whom battle, battle stuff regularly. And maybe it's good for us to remember that, some of us who might, you know, have larger spans of, of healthy, healthiness and where we, because you know what? Life is actually feels better to live when you have vigor and energy. And it's harder when you're, when you're struggling with your health. I was thinking about this whole idea. In fact, that's why I ended up going all over the place. That's why I put that 102nd Psalm in there, which I'm not going to have us read through. But it's an interesting psalm. It talks about somebody. The psalmist is struggling with his illness, and he's upset with God. People are mad at him. He's wondering if he's even going to make it. I was thinking there are times where we just get so sick or, you know, life is hitting us all at once in a wave that really it's hard to muster up 
strength to go seize the day. In fact, when someone starts saying that, you know, put on it, we could like, get away from me, you know? It's like, leave me alone. Let me just sit here. And, and in that place, in those times, and, I was, and it got me, I was, so I was going all over thinking about things, reading different portions of scripture, and I was just, couldn't do anything. So I was just thinking about life, about the gift of life. I, I got, I was reading about a man, I introduced his name last week, named John Donne. John Donne was a, uh, well, he was an English poet in the 16th, late 16th, 17th century, and I referred to him last week, but he was the head or the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was kind of a pastor, in a way, of a church. But the time that he was living, he and serving in, it was probably one of the most difficult periods in the history of the Western world. He was living at the time of what is known as the, the Great Plague, or the Black Death. And it's hard for us to really conceive this. We have nothing honestly, that can adequately relate to it uh, in terms of what we've experienced here, certainly in America. Because we know that this disease hit in waves, hit Europe in waves, in which in successive moments it took out large chunks of the population. They aren't exactly sure of the numbers, but one of the things they know, somewhere between one-third to one-half of the entire population of Europe was wiped out by the, by the uh, Black Plague, or the Black Death, as they called it. And we know now where it came from. It was an epidemic of bubonic plague. It was uh, caused by a bacterium, the, what was it, the Pasteurella pestis. It was on a flea. And the flea was on rats that were migrating, black rats from, from it had migrated from Asia, and they brought this disease, and it just wiped out, you know, just thousands and thousands of people. Dunn was in London at a time when there was a wave after wave hitting of this disease. And this is what Philip Yancey wrote, and I put this in, your, in the handout as well. He says, you know, we moderns have perfected techniques for coping with crisis, this crisis, techniques that doubtless would cause John Dunn much puzzlement. Most of us construct elaborate means of avoiding death altogether. Health clubs are a booming industry, especially in January as are nutrition and health food stores. I mean, we get that. We, we treat physical health like a religion, he says, while simultaneously walling off deaths, blunt reminders, mortuaries, intensive care units, cemeteries. But living in plague times, Dunn did not have the luxury of denial. Each night, check this out, horse-drawn carts rumbled through the streets to collect the bodies of that day's victims. Their names over a thousand each day at the plague's height, appeared in long columns in the next day's newspaper. No one could live as though death did not exist. Like others from his time, Dunn kept a skull. Interesting. He kept a skull on his desk as a reminder. Memento mori. A Latin phrase that could be freely translated, remember that you are mortal. Remember that you will die. People in his era had become so acquainted with the brevity of life and its fragility that they used symbols and they placed them on their desk or placed them in their pictures to remind them of the brevity of life. I mean, it's, again, it's hard for us to conceive that many people would be like, you know, it's just, it's just it, almost inconceivable for us to consider it. And yet this is what Dunn's reality was in London at the time. 
And in fact, it, it created uh, a great fear, obviously, but it also caused people to really think about, because of life's fragility and the tenuous existence that one held where every common cold seemed like it could be like the plague. And so you were just living constantly with death around you. Very in touch with mortality. Very in touch with the fact that we were not built to last forever. And so they would take these symbols, and the skull was one of the symbols. In fact, now it was um, last summer that I was visiting my, my mother up north and uh, went to Portland. We happened to meet up in Portland there. And uh, one of the things that happened, because I was preparing something again, this will make, make more sense to some than others. But in the fall, we shared a series on the prodigal son, the story that Jesus gave us. We spent a lot of time with that parable. It was fantastic. We, we talked about uh, Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal, and we interacted the painting with the teaching of Jesus, and we drew things out of that back and forth. Well, at the time, I was, I was intrigued because one of the things that just happened to be going on when I was in Portland was that they had a uh, showing of some of Rembrandt's art that they had from the Rijksmuseum they had brought over, and it was on display at the Portland Museum of Art, and I thought, you know, boy, I think I should go see that. Uh, it will be helpful for me in light of where I knew we were going with the series. I thought, as you can see, some of Rembrandt's paintings, it wasn't, the prodigal wasn't there, but I could just learn some more. And so I went, and one of the things that happened when I was there was that there was a, there was a lot of other paintings that they sort of put together in the collection to create the exhibit. And so I was given, you know, I wanted to learn more about it, and, and so I was given one of those devices that you, you, you press, you know what I'm talking about. There are these things you put in, and it tells you about the picture. You're sort of like a self-led, uh, you know, you can take your time, and it tells you a bit about the picture. You press the button, and all of a sudden it tells you, this is what this means, and da da da, da and you get to learn a little bit more about the background of the painting correlating to the number. And so I, I was doing this, and I came across, I was, of course, the Rembrandts were at the center, and it was very interesting to me and helpful. But then I came across these other paintings that initially I, you know, I was not accustomed to seeing. In fact, part of me was going, why are these paintings here? What does this mean? What is going on here? Because in the paintings, in these portraits, would be these kind of bizarre symbols. That you see a skull, or an hourglass, or rotting fruit, or smoke or a flower losing its petal. Uh, you start, you see this, and, and uh, what, it, what it started describing was it said this is a particular style of, from the 16th and 17th century of Dutch and Flemish Belgian artists called vanitas. It was, has to do with vanity. It was a genre of painting that was connected to the idea of the brevity of life because they were, again, living in an era where death was so near to them. And so the those symbols became reminders to not take the gift of life for granted, but to live well and wisely. In fact, let me just show you quickly a couple, and you'll see what I mean. Look at, the, look at this one, um, the first one that we'll show you here. It's obvious what's trying to be said. Here's a young man in the prime of his life, and here he's holding this. What is it telling us? It's, it's life and death. It's, it's youth and the ultimate end. Very sobering portrait. Then look at this other one which was noticed, something that was also something that would have caught the attention. Go to the second one, in which you see also three other images. Again, still life, but what are we noticing here? To see the images, the skull, the hourglass. That was another thing. That you, would see you would see watches and hourglasses. Again, indicating the passing of time, the brevity of our life, its joys, 
its end. It was the book of Ecclesiastes. They were painting it, and they were placing these symbols into their portraits as well. Go to the last one, and I'll just show you again, just as an example. You can see a slightly different take on it, a candle, the idea of our life having a certain time of duration where we're lit, and then we're cut, things are cut off. The idea of learning, books, aging, glasses, there's symbols all over the place. And these were placed into portraits. Why? Because people were connecting with the reality that life was so short, and, and it needed to be lived with that understanding. And that really is something that I think we are invited to consider when we look at the scriptures because that's essentially the book of Ecclesiastes in visual form. It's like he's saying, in light of the fact that we are people with a beginning and an ending, put aside reckless living and don't be filled with pride. Remember what, why we're here and always live with one eye on eternity. Uh, love life, live life well, remember God. All is passing and fading. Be careful about what we are pursuing. Think about why we're doing what we're doing. It's all there. Vanity of vanities. It's all there in the book. Now go back to verse 9. It says here, he, he, the preacher continues on in Ecclesiastes 11. He says, young people, it's wonderful to be young. And it is. It's great. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. And then the qualifier. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything that we do. Everything that you do, he says. So what he's saying is, enjoy life, live life, but remember, don't be reckless with life. Remember that at some point we're going to have to own up to what, how we've lived and the decisions we make, that God, it matters to God. These things are noticed. They're not forgotten. And there's something about that is saying, you know, put boundaries around our life, acquaint ourselves with what, what God says is the wise living. There's something there when you look at this passage. And then he says, in light of that, refuse, look at verse 10, refuse to worry. That's a great advice. It's great counsel. Don't be seized with anxiety and grip with it, things that we can't really control anyway. How oftentimes are we haunted by things and bothered by things? and paralyzed with fear over what may happen, might happen, this might be. And the part of what the Bible is saying is don't get caught up in that. Ask God to give us grace to live well, and that often involves not being gripped with anxiety. Notice he says here, don't worry, refuse to just be bound by worry, and keep your body healthy, which is an interesting uh, other side to this, isn't it? I, mean, it's, I think it's important for us. What he's saying is when you're young, live in light of the fact that you might grow older and take care of yourself in appropriate ways. Even that's what he's saying, because ultimately how we live, he's saying, will affect how we, how we age. And so he's saying, take care of your body. There's, something, so there's wisdom there. And yet he's, the bottom line is he says, but at the same time, remember that youth with a whole life before you is also meaningless. At the end of the day, it won't last. One season turns into another. I was talking to my, I was talking to my daughter, and we were, in, we were together, and we were talking about just uh, the season of life that she's entering into, and we were looking at a school together and talking about it, and I, and I said, you know, I go, I'll be honest with you, I would have loved to have the opportunity that you have right now. I think you should really weigh it out. I go, this is a great season for you. And we were talking about it, and then I also said something, but remember, it's not gonna last, <laughs> you know? I said, thanks, Dad, I, I appreciate your encouraging words there. You know, I said, You're, everybody has their day in the sun. You know, and then you move on to another stage of life. And I go, spring and summer, winter, fall, winter. I go, you know, spring turns to summer, and summer inevitably turns to the fall. And last week we talked about 
you know, the distress that often grips people, especially when they're moving from summer into fall. There's a tendency for people to get really, I don't know what it is, but this period of life, there's a tendency to get very reckless and to feel like time's running out, so I'm going to go back and, and uh, recover things or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to concede anything. And a lot of times selfishness is, is made and acted upon, I'm going to say it, and a lot of people get hurt when that happens. And people who should have been faithful, who would have had a great harvest, driven out of insecurity or fear of missing out, oftentimes make a shambles of things, and so many innocents are hurt along the way. There's a certain recklessness associated with, remember I talked about last week, I said in the springtime, and by the way, this is the challenge of talking about the seasons, is that when I'm talking about one season, someone says, well, that really doesn't relate to me. So, but part of the thing is to get us to thinking about, one, where we're going, where we've been, what can we learn, what is ahead of us. I remember I talked about how in the spring of life or in the earlier parts of summer, we can make mistakes, not that we, not that we should desire to do so, but we can make mistakes and poor choices, and although there are consequences to certain things, there, it, we can recover. We get oftentimes, not always, another opportunity. But the further we move in life, the more that window closes, and the more essential it is that we, we make good decisions. And, and I'm saying it's a blessing to make good decisions early. It really is. But, how, but there is a season where we cannot afford to not do this one right because the consequence of it will almost be irreversible, and there's no, I get to go at it again. Now, I'm going to talk about that, but let me just suggest that I'm going to say that, that fall, the fall season of life in particular, again, the principle applies across the board, the fall season of life is a time for wise living, and it's a time for sobriety or having a proper estimate on what's important. Sobriety, thinking things through, having a proper conception of what is essential. This is a time for living well. It's a time for exercising good judgment, not making the same mistakes that we've made in the past, learning from things. It's a time where we still, in theory, have strength, but at the same time, uh, hopefully, there's an acquired life experience that hasn't made us cynical so that we can actually work more intelligently, if we can say it that way. Uh, I remember I, was, uh, I often talk about the difference between living effectively and living efficiently, and the difference between the two concepts. Efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness, doing the right things. And some of us are very efficient at the wrong things. And that's not that good because it produces a harvest that's disappointing. The Lord is constantly challenging us to think about what are the right things that I'm, and then as, I, as I've got the priorities in their right places, what Jesus talked about, seek first the kingdom of God, what is right in his eyes. Go to the scripture, go to, go to the teachings of the Lord, read the Bible, interact with it, talk about it, engage it, consider its, its wisdom for how to live well and how to live a life that's pleasing to God. Let it challenge us because what it will tell us, what it will remind us of is that there is a way to live that is effective. It's, it's, it's doing the, the right things that, and not just doing things, because a lot of times we are squandering our, in fact, I was, I was, there was a, a man I was talking to, he was telling me about his grandfather. I remember hearing this story from him. He said, 
He, was, he said, at the time, I was a really young and powerful. He says, I was young. I was in my youth prime. He goes, and my grandfather, he was a older. He still had a lot of vigor in him. And he goes, and I never forget, he goes, the time when we went out to go chop some wood together. And he goes, I was just strong. I was coming into my, my you know, youth and, and my strength. And he goes, and I thought, Gramps, you know, you're going to have a hard time keeping up with me, right? And so he says, we started going at it. He started chopping the wood. And he says, before long, he says, he was shocked. He was stunned because he was exhausted. And he had been flailing away with all his might and all his power, and his grandfather had this fluidity, this rhythm. And he says there was no, there was no waste in his movements. And I'm, you know, I, I don't even know how, he's, I, how I think it was doing it, right? But I, mean, I don't know. I'm not experienced at it either. I, I, I was sure I would identify more with the, the city boy who thought he was going to show his grandpa, right, how, how you do it. But after he had splayed, he had a lot of energy, far more physical prowess, strength endurance, but he was just you know, expending his energy in such a prodigal way that it, the effect of it was actually not that great compared to the amazing efficiency or the precision of the economy of the way in which the grandfather was doing the same thing, but in a complete, in other words, he had such a, a way of conserving his energy and making each hit count because of the technique. And there is something to be said about, yeah, maybe I don't have the, we don't have the strength that we used to have, but there is something about learning from the lessons of life, learning how to do things well, learning how not to simply just, you know, and by the way, the, if we, we can, there's no reason why we can't learn this in the late spring and in the summer. If we do, the likelihood of a great harvest is greatly increased. In fact, that's the second point here, second thought here anyway, which is this, that, that fall really is a time for harvest and bounty. It's a time for getting a crop that has been planted, and we watch it grow, and we get to rejoice in that. There's something to be said about watch, planting things and watching them come to pass. There's a certain satisfaction that occurs when that happens. And a lot of times we, we, we get frustrated because it's hard to wait for something when it's planted and do all the work that's necessary, and then we get the harvest, a lot of times we give up way too soon. And we squander what would have been a really a beautiful harvest because we're restless, and we lack patience, and we're getting drawn off. And I just, you know, again, these tension points between learning how to be effective in the way we live our life for God, asking ourselves what's important, how am I pouring my energy into this? How am I preparing my life for a harvest? You know, it's interesting because for the Jewish people in, in the Older Testament, the, they were an agricultural people. They understood harvest, the law of harvest, sowing and reaping. What you put in the ground, there's one thing we know. What we put in will come out. And they had harvest times. They had an early harvest, a mid-harvest. They had a, a, a spring harvest. They had a summer harvest. And they had a, a fall harvest. But there were times where there was bound, they were, they were expecting a, something to come from what has been planted. I'm going to say that if we plant good things in our lives, if we begin to address issues in our lives, think about the crop we are planting. Think about it. Am I just split, you know, kind of just throwing myself? Am I just wasting a lot of this gift of energy, just, you know, recklessly going at it, and then I'm, I'm exhausted, but what have I really accomplished? Or is there real thought and reflection and consideration going into how this life is being lived? And what, what am I supposed to be doing in this season of my life? 
What would most honor God? What, would, what things would be appropriate for this season of my life? Again, a lot of times we, we're, we're restless to accept and embrace the season we're in because we want to go back and stay where we were. But everything is telling us you can't go back that way. Be, move gracefully into what we, are, we now have. Embrace it appropriately. Learn from the past. This idea of bounce. You know what's interesting also? Some people said to me, you know, Pastor, uh, it, it, they wouldn't necessarily say it exactly like that, but it, it could come out that way. But it would be like, you know, you're making me sad. Because what happens if I, I'm, all, I, I'm in the middle of this thing and I feel like I messed up, but I made a lot of bad decisions. And I had this person tell me, like, you know, I feel like I squandered my, my chance. And that I really wasn't preparing. I was, I made a mess of things and now I feel like I got, I mean, I feel discouraged by this. And I thought, you know, can I tell you something else? I said, not only is it a time for harvest and bounty, I said, you know, one of the things that characterizes this season from what I've seen is that because of God's grace and if we're willing to surrender some of our agenda to him and really try to learn, no matter where we are in life, it'll be amazing what God can do because why harvest is a time for restoration and recovery. It really is. It's a time, and just, just think about that for a moment. It's a time when the Lord says, I want to, I, I know this was lost and it's maybe not going to come back the way that it was, but I can tell you, I've watched God do miracles in the lives of people. One of the benefits to being able to be a part of what I'm doing here is I get to see so many stories of people's lives. And yeah, I see sad things, but I also see miracles. I watch God take dead things and, and, and breathe life into them. I watch God do, honestly, it would almost, in, in some way, you could say, he, it is the impossible. I watch people who come to the Lord at periods of their lives, maybe later on they, they, they finally got, got it, surrendered, but feel like, I made it, why didn't I get it earlier? You know what, they're like Paul. But I said, don't forget the Apostle Paul. He felt like he was someone born at the wrong time, but God still used him in an amazing way. I said, in fact, let me tell you, and I believe this, this verse that I'm going to show you is a word for some of us. But in the book of Joel, look at this. Look at this. Some of us know about this, and we've heard this before. But so I will, the prophet writes, and really it's the Lord speaking to the people through the prophet Joel. He says, so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts has, has eaten. Now, okay, okay. We, that verse, this verse here, we look at it, we go, whoa, what do those swarming locusts mean to me? You know, it's, I mean, that's, we don't use that language because we're not an agricultural people. I don't even, for me, I'm going, I had to read, you know, when you read all though what it meant for them, if their, their livelihood, their lives were built around the harvest and food and the, uh, the crop, and when they would have a coming of locusts, it would be, they said it was like, it still happens today. Like a sky, all of a sudden it darkens. Literally, the sun darkens. The mass of these, these insects come, and they fall upon, they, they literally eat every, every ounce of greenery that is there. It's just completely devastated. And imagine if your entire year is gone, just like that. And imagine if this, if you, do you recover? Can you recover? And it's like the Lord was saying, you have lost so much. But let me tell you, I am able to restore that which you've lost. It may not look exactly what, it, what you thought it was going to be, but if you are willing, I am willing. And there's something about what God can do in a life 
Someone says to me, well, I, I go, listen, remember, I say, there were three harvest seasons. There was an early one. He yeah, had the spring. It's true. And the more we can think about what it means to live an honoring life for God in the spring, the better. There's a summer. I said, it has, it has, in the middle of the summer, there's a harvest, no question about it. If we get it there, that's wonderful. May we do it. May we not make the mistakes of our youth. May we say with David, remember not, Lord, the sins of my youth. Help me, God, to get it. But, I, but then I said, but don't also forget, at the end of the fall, there was a latter harvest. I go, who can say that God's wanting you to plant something right now? And I've seen him do amazing things, literally. I've seen him do wondrous things. And think about that. And my people, I do not want you to live in shame. Wow. What is that? There's something about the goodness of the Lord speaking to us. So I guess whether we're somewhere early in life and we're going to make Here's the deal. Some of us are early in life. I know there's no guarantees. But may the Lord give us grace to make good decisions and plant crops and be patient. For those of us who are further along, let us resist the tendency to give up and to live without hope because you know why? The Lord can do amazing things with little. And I, I, I've seen it. I've seen God just turn things around. It appears in people's lives where they thought I've made such a mess. It's never going to ever get real. And I've watched God do it. They're, if we're willing, He is able. I mean, it's amazing to me. That's all I can say to you is, is don't underestimate what God can do if we're willing to align ourselves with Him. Okay, Lord, I pray that you would help us to really appreciate what it is that we're talking about and interacting with. Here we are, God, um, thinking about things that are going to last a long time. We're looking at our lives, Lord, and some of us, we're at places in our lives where we can make decisions. And some of these decisions we're going to make, Lord, are going to affect us for decades. It's amazing how our lives can come down to five key decisions. And Lord, I pray that if we're in the, on the verge of making them, that we would really listen for your wisdom in, in the counsel and the prayers of others, Lord. That we would acquaint ourselves with your word and involve ourselves in community so that there are other voices speaking into our lives, challenging us around the decisions we're making, that we might live well and we might be a blessing. And for those of us, Lord, who maybe our battle is to just be able to embrace the promise of a better day. I pray that you would speak hope into us and breathe life into us because you are the God who is the God of resurrection and life. And I know that you can do things. I've seen it. And we may, we may you know, it is possible, Lord, that the latter part of our life will be the part of our life that is the great breakthrough in our life. That there will come more fruit from the final seasons than there ever came from the beginning. I want to ask you, Lord, to give us that promise to live optimistically, to live with faithful eyes on the one who is faithful. And I want to pray that you would inspire us with a shot of love, Lord. And I ask God that you would stir us with hope in our hearts to not give up on things, but to be open to you and the wonder of what it is you want to do. And I just want to pray for the last song, because I love this song. And I love the message that's in it. And I pray that some of us would just be blessed by its poetry and by its, its message, because it speaks about a God who doesn't give up on us. So I'll lift my, my heart towards you. I lift my cup, as it were, Lord, and I say thank you for a God that loves me and cares so much. I pray my heart would always be stirred by the goodness of your grace. So I pray for blessing. I pray for life, not death. I ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen, God. Amen.